chapter 16. This is the last message in a series that has taken almost two years to complete. We've been in and out of the Gospel of Mark, and this will be the 70th sermon from the Gospel of Mark. If you're tired of it, don't say amen. Okay, just keep that. Yeah, there we go. Praise God. That's good enough. We started on August 22nd, 2021. I still had hair. We've had <laughs> on my back, Dale. <laughs> oh, my beard. Yeah. <clears throat> sermons on, we've had sermons on the Holy Spirit, sermons on leadership and servanthood, Rahab, holidays, whole series on joy. We've had guest speakers, missionaries, but now here we are over two years later finishing this up. Now next week we're going to begin a seven-week series with uh, Pastor Calvin preaching on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, but seven psalms for the season are going to take us all the way to Christmas, and I'm excited for those psalms that encourage and build up the church, and I'm looking forward to each and every one of them. And then like I said, as we begin the new year, I'm going to begin a series I'm titling Where Heaven Meets Earth. And I'm excited for that series as well. We'll spend about three months in that before embarking in the book of Zechariah. That's the plan. The Holy Spirit sometimes throws a curveball and says, hey, we need to touch on this or we need to do this. So just be in prayer over that. But we're going to begin reading today in verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who'd been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. He said to them, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. Well, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The one thing I hope you take away from this message is the same thing that I've said since the very first sermon, which was titled The Passion of John the Baptist. Your life reflects your theology. What you believe about God is reflected in every single thing you do. Now you share Jesus, how you talk about Jesus, how you eat your lunch, whether you pray over that lunch or whether you thank God for that food or, or whatever the case is, your theology is what you believe about God and it is reflected in every single thing you do. As that theology is revealed within our lives, as we act that out, we'll face one of three things. Rejection, we see that in our text. Repentance, we see that in our text. Or revelation, 
And we see that in our text as well. If you're not seeing one of these three things in your life, chances are your theology needs a tune-up. One pastor said, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian is a theologian. Perhaps not a theologian in the technical or professional sense, but a theologian nevertheless. The issue for Christians is not whether we are going to be theologians, but whether we are going to be good theologians or bad ones. Because your life does reflect what you believe about God. Now our text today is actually a very controversial text. And not just because of what's said in it. It's considered the long ending to Mark. In fact, many of you, if you look in your Bibles, the footnotes, the little uh, indentations, you probably see a footnote there saying something about uh, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. This is the long ending. Some manuscripts have this added in after verse 8. It says, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter, to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable preaching of eternal salvation. That's added in much later. This is probably some way to avoid or, or validate maybe the, the short ending. But we don't operate under the short ending, and I'll explain why. Because there's a strong case for the long ending of Mark. Of the quote-unquote earlier manuscripts, and we have hundreds of manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, by the way, there's only about six that don't include the long ending. Only about six. One of them clearly has the long ending torn out of it. One of them has a blank space left for the longer ending to be written. It's look, it looks like the scribe sat down and wrote out the Gospel of Mark, but maybe he was getting some hand cramps, got up to get a cup of coffee, and never came back to finish it. Some has commentary and things like that about the long ending, but it doesn't have the, the long ending itself written in. And one of the, ta- one of the pages was, was torn or burned out as well. Arrhenius in the who was a disciple of Polycarp and was Polycarp was a disciple of John, the John, Gospel of John, John. He mentions the long ending of Mark in the late second century. Some bigger names don't quote it all the way into the fifth century, but many do. Ambrose, Jerome, Ephraatus, they, they quote it in, all the way into the fourth century. I believe Justin Martyr also quotes it. So it does have some validity there. Many of the church fathers do quote it and have used it. It was often accepted as the legitimate ending to Mark, actually up until the last couple hundred years. The case against it is just those missing documents and the fact that there's kind of an awkward transition between verses 8 and verse 9. And there's probably cause for that too. But I would argue this document, even if it were edited, It is just as inspired because God has allowed it to continue within the canon of Scripture for so long. As Paul told Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And this is Scripture. I think if you read the passage, you'll see, and we will see today, how it harmonizes with the other Gospels, how it harmonizes with the epistles, and so on. It is the Word of God. I believe the Bible that you hold in your hand, especially if you have an NASB or ESV or CSB, 
It's as accurate to the original manuscripts as possible. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't have wasted time this past week studying this portion of Scripture, much less preach it. So here we are. Within these last 11 verses of Mark, we see this fitting end to Mark's gospel account. And what I believe we're seeing is what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about God, is reflected in how you live your life for him. Again, your life reflects your theology. The first thing we actually see is rejection. We go back to verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, of verses 9 through 11, they appear to be Mark's version of John's gospel, John 20, verses 11 through 18. Not surprisingly, Mark might writes a more abrupt, more concise version of that here, likely because of his audience. And Matthew actually includes the other Mary in his account, but Mark doesn't. He just focuses on Mary Magdalene, likely because in his audience might have been Mary Magdalene. Two weeks ago, we saw that she fled from the tomb with the other ladies, but Mary Magdalene doesn't seem to have left, or perhaps she went back looking for Jesus. Maybe she thought, well, he didn't get too far away. And she finds him. John's gospel tells us that she found him. She's, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She was looking for Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. And she thinks he's the gardener, which is kind of ironic because he is the one who tills the soil of our hearts with his Holy Spirit and the word of God gets implanted, right? And, and he's also the one who planted the most famous garden in all of history, the Garden of Eden, where man sinned. And yet here the gardener stands before her, proof that her sins have been paid for and she doesn't recognize him. Jesus probably hid his appearance, much like he did later, and we'll get to this with the two disciples on their way to Emmaus. Luke tells us they were walking on the road to Emmaus, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's very possible the same thing is happening to Mary here. Eventually, he's going to make it clear who he is, and so he instructs Mary. Matthew's gospel tells us, Jesus said to them, speaking of Mary and the other Mary, do not be afraid, go tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. But notice what happens when they go, verses 10 and 11. She went and told those who had been with him and as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. They reject the message. They don't want to hear this. Remember, the angel had told her and the other ladies, go and tell. So they went and told. And not just the 11 disciples, verse 10 tells us she went to all of those who'd been with him. Whether it's the 70 or the 500, it's not just those original 11. In fact, Peter tells us there were more than just the 11 men left. By the time we get to Acts 1.21, they're picking the replacement for Judas. He says, one of the men who have accompanied us with, uh, during the, all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, one of the men, that's meaning there's at least more than two, right? We're not really told exactly how many, but Mary goes and she tells them the good news. 
Jesus Christ died. We all know he died. And he was buried in that grave, but he's not there. He's risen. It's one of the most beautiful things in all of literature and all of history. Though when the angel says, he is risen, he's not here. And she goes and she says, I've seen him. And what do they do? They reject the message. They hear it in their grief as they mourn and they weep. They hear it as a group of people who have no hope. They hear it as people who've abandoned their Lord. Luke confirms this. Luke says in Luke 24.10, It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, the other women with them, told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. You understand, many will reject the gospel when we present it because to them it seems like an idle tale. Many will reject the gospel when we give it to them because they cannot get past their own hurt, their own grief, or perhaps they've abandoned Christ for their own idol of self, their own idol of pride, you name it. But that should not deter the church as we live out what we believe about Jesus. It does not change the fact that we have had an encounter with the risen Christ. It doesn't change the fact that he has changed us. And it definitely does not change the fact that he is risen Indeed. Verse 12 goes on. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Verse 13, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Again, Mark shortens something. Another gospel writer expands on elsewhere. The stories of the disciples going to Emmaus. He talks about this in Luke 24, 13 through 35. Here we get two verses. Only two verses to tell us the story. The women came, and then Mary comes by herself. And then these two unnamed people, they, they hear it, and they go out, and they, they head to this little town called Emmaus. It's often called Kubeba. It's a town around seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's not a quick walk. Seven miles. Anybody ever hear, hear ever walk a 10K or run a 10K? It takes at least about an hour. So these guys, people who walk normally, they're, they're going to be at least an hour on the road. And they're heading back after the holiday. Holiday's still going on, mind you, but they've got jobs. They've got families to get back to. So they're walking, and as they are doing so, someone appears walking with them. It's Jesus, but he's, he's in another form. Well, if Satan can masquerade as an angel of light... Certainly Jesus can change his outward appearance. We see him actually do this on the Mount of Transfiguration to the one who spoke the stars into existence, putting on a mask that humans can't understand is no small or no big task. It's no big deal. So Jesus appears to them. He looks like just another normal guy. They don't recognize him. Luke tells us they're prevented from recognizing him, but they begin to talk with him because they were arguing as he approached them. And he wants to know what they're arguing about. And one of them, we're told by Luke, his name is Cleopas, he says, you got to be the only guy in all Jerusalem who hasn't read the Gazette this week. That's the local paper. He says, you got to be the only guy who doesn't know what's happening. <laughs> if you're going to watch YouTube videos while I'm preaching, I'm kidding, you're good, you're you're fine. (laughs) 
Well, we've embarrassed Lolly this morning, so we're, we're good. This was an accomplished service, but. But Jesus appears to just look like some guy. And they said, well, you don't even know what happened. Did you hear about this Jesus guy who was crucified? We'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We hoped he was the actual Messiah. Now it's the third day since all these things have happened. They even mentioned Mary and the women coming with their ridiculous tale, supposedly. They say some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb earlier this morning, and, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Crazy thing those women folk dream up, right? Stranger? Well, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as empty as the women had said, but they did not understand. They didn't see him. And the stranger begins to talk to them and, and walk them through the Old Testament one more time. And he tells them, you understand that if he was the Messiah, he had to die. And he had to rise again. That's if he is the Messiah Isaiah predicts and all these things. And, and then, finally, as they're sitting down for dinner, then their eyes are finally opened. And they recognize him. And he vanishes from their sight. So what do they do? Do they sit there and finish their meal? No. They sit there and say, did you see what I saw? No. They get up immediately and they go back and they tell everybody else, wouldn't you? If I'm having dinner with somebody and they skip out on the check, that's not what happened. But if they disappear and I realize it's Jesus, oh, I'm telling everyone who will listen to me. How many witnesses in the Old Testament did it take to confirm a story? Two or three. There were at least two or three women, but, well, we don't listen to women in this era, right? So, okay. But now you've got two male disciples walking, and now they confirm it. How many people listened? How many people believed? Zero. These men, their life imitated their theology. And as soon as they understood what was happening, when they understood who it was who was talking to them, as Jesus revealed himself to them, as their eyes are open, they could not sit still. They immediately go back and they tell the disciples, but they were rejected. Do you think they stopped telling the disciples? Do you think they stopped telling everybody what they'd seen, what they'd heard? I don't. Again, how could you not tell? News is all over the city. Cleopas made that clear, right? News is out. Jesus died. But I got news. He's alive. I saw him. Me and my buddy, we were walking to Emmaus. And that's how we know how they believed. They couldn't help but tell everybody. How could our lives not live out that truth? How could we stand to be quiet even after facing rejection, how could we dare be quiet about the risen Christ? We shouldn't. We should continue to live what we know to be true about our God, that he, he paid for our sins. He rose from the grave. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were sinners. We've been set free. And if you believe that, how can your life not reflect that? How can you not share that with other people? But in doing so, the message has to bring repentance. And if you remember repentance, the Hebrew word is shuv. It means you're going one direction, but you turn and you go 
in the right direction. The Greek word metanoia means it changes your mind so that it changes your actions. Verse 14 says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he'd risen. This happens back in Jerusalem, by the way. Jesus shows up to the eleven themselves. We see this play out in John 20, verse 19 through 29. He rebukes them. For their unbelief, their hardness of heart. Mark says they're reclining at table. They're eating. I don't know about you, but when I feel grief, I'm not hungry. I don't want to eat. You see, they're starting to move on. They're no longer grieving. They're they're having lunch. And Jesus rebukes them. And the word rebuke here, it's a very harsh word. It's one of those words that's not used anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. It means he reviled them. He admonished them. And in fact, in one sense, it means he mocked them. Not to be cruel, not to be mean, but to snap them out of this belief, that, of this feeling of despair they've been living in, this hardening of their hearts. They've been told now at least two or three times that Jesus is alive and to go to Galilee, to not sit still. And yet, here they are. Still in Jerusalem, stuffing their mouths. Jesus rightfully is not happy with them. Now this wakes the disciples up. They, they do snap out of it. But John tells us one of the eleven was missing, this guy Thomas. And Thomas gets a bad rap. We say he's doubting Thomas. Thomas just wants the facts. He's not a doubter. He just, he just wants to make sure they're not messing with him. John makes it clear Thomas doesn't believe until Jesus shows up and he sees the nail scars. He sees the hole in his side. And what's he say? What's he declare? He says, my Lord and my God. John 20, 28. And Jesus doesn't really rebuke him. He just says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You understand, this is what causes the disciples to stop going in the direction they were going and now go in the direction Christ has called them to. That's repentance. And now they head in the direction of Galilee. When we understand that, when we have an understanding of the gospel, repentance must follow. We understand that he died for our sins. We do not stay in our sins. First John says, those who practice a sin are, we don't go that route. But some time passes, about 40 days, between verses 14 and verse 15. 40 days have passed. We go on to verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go and tell. Go and proclaim. We see this point driven home to us once more. It's not a suggestion. It's not a request. It's a command. Each and every follower of Jesus Christ should, at some point, seek to go and tell somebody. Because at some point in your life, somebody cared enough to come and tell you. Somebody loved you enough to give you the gospel. Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Well, we are 
sent. Are we not? Do we not see that in this very text? The reason so many Christians don't go and tell is because they've not repented and believed the gospel themselves. They may go to church. They may try to live a certain way, but they've not truly understood the gospel or it would change their life. It would shake their life. The gospel is not, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The gospel is not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are things you do when the gospel has changed your heart. This is how we live out what we believe. Jesus says, verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I'm going to be very clear. Jesus did not come to earth and die on the cross so you can be splashed with water, sprinkled with water, or dunked in a tank, and your life is just good from that point forward. Jesus came to take men and women who are dead in their sin and bring them to life. Key words we should notice here is whoever does not believe will be condemned. Paul writes, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so no one may boast. It's the belief that brings the baptism. Belief that brings repentance. I'll explain that. Baptizing in water is not what saves you. It's the baptism in identifying with Christ and his death that saves The water baptism is a reflection of the spiritual truth. It's a public declaration of spiritual warfare that has been won within the heart and soul of the believer. You are saying to everyone, I've chosen my side. I identify with Jesus Christ. And as he died and was buried, yet rose again, I go under the water and rise again. Paul says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's Romans 8, 10, and 11. You see, baptism in water, it too quickly becomes a ritual. It's just a thing. But the baptism into Christ is a lifestyle. It's theology that's lived out day to day. If your spiritual growth stopped in a tank of water, the water meant nothing. If your spiritual growth stops when you're satisfied because you think you know everything, you don't know anything. If your spiritual growth stops at 1130 on a Sunday morning, you have missed the message. If your spiritual growth stops because you've reached a certain age, then you don't don't understand spiritual maturity. I'm going to take it even further. If your spiritual growth stops because you just love Jesus, you don't really love his church, then you don't really love Jesus. My wife and I are a package deal. You can't say, I love Jeff, but I don't, I don't care for Jennifer. Then you really don't love Jeff. The same is true with Christ and his bride. You can't say, I, I, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. And I'm not, guys hear me, I'm not even talking about loving faith assembly of God. I'm just talking about Christ's church. If you're not committed to gathering with other believers, growing with other believers, you cannot expect to grow in Christ. 
If the gospel's truly changed your life and you've turned from a life of sin, you've repented and you turned towards Christ, if you love Christ, you'll obey his commands and he commands us to gather. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then Jesus himself says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You can't love Jesus and not like Christians. The disciples were rebuked because they'd gotten comfortable in their hardness of heart and their unbelief. And Jesus reviles them, but it revives them. They made their way to the mountain where he told them, go and tell. If your repentance does not lead you to also go and tell, then you did not repent and turn towards Jesus. Not the Jesus of the Bible. You may have changed your behavior, but the Holy Spirit didn't change your heart. And there is a difference. If your life does not imitate a theology of a Christ that rebukes and draws us to repent and commissions us to go, you have bad theology. Third, we see a revelation. Verses 17 and 18. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. These signs will accompany those who believe. Do you know, how do you know they believe? By their lifestyle. By the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Church history has proven over the last 2,000 years every single one of these miracles can be faked. Duplicated. Counterfeited even have a demonic presence behind them. But the lifestyle of the believer, when you are close to them, close proximity to them, you cannot fake for long the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The message they preached could be verified through Scripture. We see this with Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7. Stephen goes through the entire Old Testament and points to Christ. And Luke tells us Stephen's lifestyle was one that was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, he did perform signs, we're never told what, because that doesn't matter as much as the fruit of the Spirit in his life. We should not take for granted if someone performs or claims to perform a miracle, that this automatically somehow qualifies them to preach or speak into our lives. I heard of a guy who supposedly raised 300 people from the dead, but can't produce a single one of them to verify it. You'd think out of 300 people, you'd get 10 30, you can't find one. We don't take it for granted. Deuteronomy warns us of this. It says, if a, even if a prophet were to say something that comes true, if he says, let us go after other gods, and that includes a different version of Jesus, that includes a different Holy Spirit. Let us go after other gods, which you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Throw them out. Understand their life is imitating their theology. And if it's a life that's obsessed with signs and wonders, but it doesn't reproduce the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's not a life worth imitating. These signs will, by the way. He says will, not must, but will. 
They are not signs we make happen or force happen. But God does these things as we believe to assure us of our belief. For the unbeliever to see them and come to faith to validate the proclamation of the gospel that we preach. The cessationist camp, they would say that all the gifts have ceased. That they have stopped with the apostles. We fiercely disagree with that. Jesus did not say the gifts were strictly for the apostles. What did he say? They're for who? Those who believe. He says in his name they will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents. They'll drink poison. They'll lay hands on the sick. They'll recover. All of these happen in the book of Acts, by the way, except one, drinking of poison. Church history tells us that that actually did happen many times. They drank it like water. They didn't even know half the time they were being poisoned. But this is not a command. It is a promise. And there is a difference. We don't go picking up snakes to prove our faith. We don't go drinking cyanide or drink antifreeze like it's Kool-Aid to see if we have enough faith. We're certainly not to go looking for demons to cast out. In fact, we're very much warned not to do that in the book of Acts. Acts 19, the seven sons of Sceva, they go around trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And if you're familiar with the story, the demon humiliates them, beats them bloody, and chases them into the street, having taken all their clothes. Many people who claim today that they've cast out demons, if they'd ever had a real encounter with a demon, they wouldn't be so quick to try and find another. Yet when the church is spreading, the gospel is spreading, these signs will happen. They accompany those who believe, confirming the truth of what we claim. We see in Acts, the church speaking in new tongues. In Acts chapter 2, I'd argue Acts chapter 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. We see this in the church today. Paul strictly tells the church of Corinth, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Speaking of Paul, we see Paul bitten by a snake in Acts 28. He gathered a bundle of sticks, put them on the fire, and a viper comes out and bites, latches onto his arm, but he shakes it off. That is scripture recording something that happened, not commanding that we replicate it. We try to copy that, putting God to a foolish test. We're told in James 5 to lay our hands on the sick. Is anyone among you, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. It doesn't guarantee a healing necessarily, but that doesn't mean prayer doesn't work, and it doesn't mean God always heals. We know God doesn't always heal from Mark 1, John 5, Acts 3, and so on. But the church is clearly commanded to pray for the sick because God does heal the sick. We're not to neglect that. And through these healings, he reveals the truth of the gospel. These healings validate the message. They did for the apostles, they do for us. Now someone might say, well, why don't we see them, why don't we see them as often as the apostles did? Well, the apostles didn't see them every day. That's why they're written down. They were rare. If miracles happen all the time, they stop being miracles. They start being average, normal things, don't they? Miracles happened for the apostles because they were Christ's representative. They happen in the church today because we are built on the foundation that the apostles laid down. 
When miracles do happen, John tells us in 1 John that we are to test the spirit behind them. Because it can be the Holy Spirit, but it can also be a spirit of a man or a woman trying to manipulate, trying to bamboozle, or worse yet, it could be demonic. In fact, when you read 1 John 4, 1, the first thing John says is do not believe every spirit. That's the first thing we're supposed to do. Not to be cynical, but to be critical, to examine, to study, to know the truth. And then he gives us five easy steps, verses 2 through 8. He says, we should ask, does what just happened exalt the truth? Because John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus, sorry, uh, does it exalt the true Christ, is what I meant to say. Does it confess that Christ Jesus has come in the flesh and is from God? Does the person who's used in the miracle, do they have the fruit of the Spirit in their life? Do they oppose worldliness? 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Does their message point us back to Scripture or to some other thing, to some other new revelation or buy my books, buy my DVDs type of thing? Because if it's not pointing us back to Scripture, John says we're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, meaning the apostles and the prophets, the scriptures. Whoever's not from God does not listen to us. Do they elevate truth? He says in verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Does the, does the miracle, does it, does it produce a genuine love for God and a love for others? Like I said, that's when the gospel has penetrated our heart. Then we love God, we love others. Or is it a love for the experience or a love for the speaker? John says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In short, the miracles only serve to confirm the revelation of Christ and draw us closer to him. That's the power and the purpose of the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12. That they grow the church, that they build the church, that they bring us closer to Christ. In verse 19, it says, So when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. This harmonizes with what Luke says in the book of Acts. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. The idea of him being taken up, that means he's being brought up by the Father. The Father is the one doing the taking. And the Jewish readers would have identified with this. They would have heard this and the Jewish Christian would, that's not too far-fetched for them because they know the story of this guy named Elijah who was taken up into heaven. And the Greeks, the Greeks reading this, they would, they would say, hey, I know a guy. I know about a guy in my religion who was taken up to heaven. They called him Heracles, or we know him because of Disney, Hercules. But Jesus does something far greater than either of those two. He sits down at the right hand of power, the right hand of the Father, because he's given authority. The writer of Hebrews tells us he's interceding on our behalf. And the disciples see this. They're witnesses to this. And they, they share this later in Acts 2.33. They witness the resurrection. They witness the ascension. There's, there's no way they could keep quiet about that. You see a guy start flying? You're going to tell someone, right? Uh, look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, Jesus. 
Okay. And then the angels say, why are you guys still standing here? Go! Verse 20. They went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. A church's effectiveness is not measured by the signs that confirm its message. Its message will be accompanied by signs when they are faithful to the message of the gospel. That message often gets faced with rejection, but it's a message that brings us to repentance. It's a message that's accompanied with gifts that reveal and confirm the truth of what we preach and teach and believe. But it's not just a message for the church. This is a message for the individual. Does your life reflect that truth? Does your life reflect that you believe that? Does your life reflect you're a follower of the Jesus of the Bible or some savior of your own concoction? I'm going to move to close in just a minute. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. But at Faith Assembly of God, our church, the gospel is to be the central message of what we do here. We either hear it, we share it, or we send it. That's why we're passionate about missions. And maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I could use one of those signs to strengthen my belief. I could use a healing. I could use a touch from God. Or maybe I just need my belief strengthened because I've not been living out my theology like I ought to. Maybe my theology needs a tune-up. Well, there's a time as we worship to come forward and ask for prayer. I'd ask the, the prayer team to come forward and pray with folks as they, as they move forward. The writer of Hebrews says, God also bore witness by signs and wondrous and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That's the key phrase. The gifts and miracles are distributed by the Holy Spirit according to his will. So when we are in his will, we can believe. We can stand in faith knowing that we will see signs the likes of which Jesus promised those who do truly believe. We don't force them to happen. We don't make them happen. But we believe when the church is in step with his will, with his gospel message, he'll bring them in order to bring people closer to Christ. So if that's you, if, I, if I'm describing what's going on in your life today, if, like I said, maybe you just want some prayer, I'd invite you to come forward while we worship. And when we're done, I'll do a prayer of dismissal. I know we have a potluck going on downstairs, and we are invited to stay and, and enjoy some fellowship as well. Go ahead, Penny. Spirit move in this day.